Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series Defending the Faith today with a message titled, We've Only Scratched the Surface. So turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I fear that in the three weeks that we've spent on apologetics, we've hardly even begun to scratch the surface. There are so many more topics. So, for instance, I never dealt with the evidence for the existence of God. Or, is it possible for a modern person to still believe in miracles? How do I know that the claims of Jesus are true? What about other religions? And while we're on the topic, what about the spiritual experiences of non-Christian people? Are they genuine or are they not? And if God created everything that exists, where did evil come from? Are there contradictions in the Bible? Do we think that the other so-called holy books, like the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, do we believe that these are holy books? How do we justify the belief in hell? How can a God of love send people to hell? So many more questions. And then, of course, there's the old standby. Isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't face reality? See, don't you see, we've only begun to scratch the surface. So many different questions. When I began this series, I used an example to try to understand the nature of apologetics. I compared our enterprise to a castle surrounded by a series of moats. The castle represents the saving news of Jesus. As Christians, it's our deep desire to see many people brought to the castle. We want them to hear of the wonderful love of God poured out in the cross of his own dear son. But surrounding this castle are a series of moats. For some, the castle seems unapproachable. All they can see are the moats. And our task is to help them cross the moats. But remember, that's not our ultimate goal. What a tragedy when when apologetics becomes an end in itself. Our reason for helping people across the moats is not that they'll be made to see that moats are crossable. No, we want people to cross the moats so that they can get to the castle. We want them to encounter the one true God and to to see the meaning of the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. We want to see men and women bow the knee and turn from sin and find the love of God who is rich in mercy and abounding in loving kindness. We want them reconciled to this one true God and for their lives to become regenerate for the glory of God and for their own eternal long-term good. We want no less than that nations would turn to the living God and to call Jesus Lord in Christ. That and that is our task. And furthermore, we are more than aware that we can never argue anyone into the kingdom. We recognize the divine calling of the Holy Spirit, releasing the human heart from the bondage of sin and causing men and women to fly to Christ and to his cross, seeking mercy and grace. Even so, we recognize the truth of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so while we give glory to God for every convert, we're not ignorant of the divine human interplay. You know, it may be true that we can with with confidence repeat Ephesians 1 verse 4 to every new believer. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we add the words of the next verse. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. For when we lead a man or woman to Christ, we're confident that within the corridors of eternity past, God in his vast electing wisdom has already chosen them. 
And yet the means that God would choose to win men and women came through us in the preaching and the teaching and in the evangelism of people. And so every believer is mandated by God not to abandon two essential obligations. The first is evangelism, and the second is to engage in apologetics. We must do what the apostle Peter has commanded us to do. It's recorded in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, a few comments of clarification. Depending on where you live, the questions that that you're asked will vary greatly. You know, if you live in one of the more rural places in our country, you will often live in an environment where the Christian faith has had considerable influence. People there ask more familiar questions like, how can I know my sins are forgiven? Or how can I know the Bible is true? But if you live in one of the country's large cities, secularism and open skepticism are the cultural norm. If you're a student in one of the nation's universities, you no doubt have heard a harsh critique of the Christian faith. And therefore, the role and necessity of apologetics has never been greater. Knowing how to give an answer will give a great deal of confidence. It will end feelings of intimidation and give you a sense of certainty regarding the things you've been taught. Now, in this regard, I want to commend at least five authors that are worthwhile for anyone to read. Two are of the last generation and three are more recent. The two of the last generation, please read C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. Read them if you can. And three current ones, I would recommend William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, and for people on a more scientific bent, might I recommend John Lennox. Apologetics really does two things. Yes, it brings confidence necessary for effective evangelism, but it's also necessary for our own faith. As one theologian said, the heart cannot delight in what the mind rejects as false. And we too in our faith need apologetics. Not only do non-Christians have doubts, we too have our own doubts. Rather than denying them, I think it's important to face them. Apologetics helps you to do just that. You know, Peter must have had that in mind when he wrote to Christians in 2 Peter 1.16. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, the importance of eyewitness accounts can be underestimated. Peter says he was there when Jesus did his miracles. He heard him preach. He was the one who denied him, and he, along with John, saw the empty tomb, and then he encountered the risen Christ. Christianity has never shied away from objective evidence. Listen to the counsel that comes from Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. See, the God of heaven invites us to reason with him. Indeed, Isaiah even contains that invitation to those who worshiped idols in his day. In Isaiah, God invites even idol worshipers to come and reason with him. Listen to Isaiah 41, 21 to 23. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. And that's the thing about idolatry. It may seem emotionally comforting, but when the day comes that demands objective action, 
One always finds that idols are impotent. And if they're impotent at the time when we need them the most, doesn't it seem reasonable to assume that they're nothing but a waste of time? Reason it out, says Isaiah. In contrast, God invites the idolater to consider his record. He's the one who promised Abraham the promised land. He's the one who brought plagues on Egypt and parted the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army and set his people free to journey to the promised land. God appeared to them on Mount Sinai and thundered with his voice, and two million of them heard his voice when he spoke. God provided them with bread to eat in the wilderness, not once, but consistently over 40 years. God parted the waters of the Jordan, brought down the walls of Jericho, routed foreign armies, and provided Israel with David their king. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, 8 and 9, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. And with that, God declares the coming of his servant, the servant of the Lord. By the time we go all the way forward to Isaiah 53, he speaks of things yet to come. His servant will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But this sorrowful servant will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that even though it will be God's will to crush his servant and make his soul an offering for guilt, yet God will prolong his days. And in so giving him life, this servant would bear away the sins of many. Indeed, by the end of Isaiah, even the Gentiles will hear. But in Isaiah, even though God tells of his dealings in the past and accurately predicts the sufferings of the Messiah in the future, Isaiah is still not done. The book of Isaiah ends with a promise that God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. So says Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Is anyone able to do what I am able to do? The God of heaven invites anyone who will to come and consider with him the evidence that he lays before us. Everyone has a story. Your own story is not just about your birth, but your new birth as well. Jesus has granted you a story of life and of eternal life. Dr. John Newfeld has a series entitled Your Salvation Story. In these five messages, he unpacks the theological and practical implications of our redemption in Jesus. This month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free CD copy of Your Salvation Story with a special booklet to help you reflect on your God-given grace. With thought-provoking questions and scripture references, It'll help you to unpack and offer clarity on some of the misconceptions you may have about your own salvation. So to request your free CD series and reflection guide, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate, the reflection guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use. Apologetics is an invitation to anyone who wills to come and consider the evidence. The evidence is impressive and there's enough there for anyone who's honest to say, I can't have a satisfied mind. In the hour of my darkest doubts, and yeah, I do have them. By the way, do you find that surprising? Everyone has seasons of doubts. The real question is not whether or not you ever doubt. The real question is, what do you do with the doubts that you have? Do you simply bury them, try to put them out of mind? 
or do you subject them to the impressive mountain of evidence that God puts before you when he invites you to reason with him? And so in the darkest hours of my doubts, I remember that as Paul said to King Agrippa, for this has not been done in a corner, or as Peter said, we're eyewitnesses. I remember Luke's words in Luke 1, 1 to 4, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I hope you see my method. I reacquaint myself with the evidence for my own faith. I never leave the Bible far from me. I have found to the extent that I neglect my Bible, my doubts return. Indeed, the very nature of the Bible reminds me of the trustworthiness of my faith. Written during a period of some 1,600 years, written by over 40 different authors, written in three different languages, Hebrew, some small sections in Aramaic and Greek, written on three continents, written by men who were both in palaces and in prisons, written by men who were a part of victorious armies, and written by men who were hounded and persecuted written by some like Paul, who were among the best educated men of his day, and others like Amos, who seems to have been no more than a vine dresser and a grower of sycamore trees. The vast diversity that makes up our Bible is astonishing. And yet, with its wide diversity, it tells one message and gives us one storyline. It never contradicts itself. It contains countless prophecies concerning the future, and because of the vast number of years through which it was written, there is enough time to see its prophecies coming true down to the details. Furthermore, the the places that it mentions are real places. The people that it mentions were real people. I was in Jerusalem when a magnificent find was made in the old city of David. Found were the names of the king's officials, all who were mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. See, there can be no doubt that what we have is real history. And so it goes without saying that the human race contains no book like the Bible. Of the untold books and tracts written by human beings, there is nothing that comes close to the composition of this book. I say this because I remind myself constantly of these things. But since I find I need to remind myself of them, I find I must also remind God's people of these things as well. And if God's people who already know many of these things need to be reminded, how much more then is it important to tell people who have never heard? We need to help them to see that that it's not unreasonable to become a Christian. It's not unreasonable to become a man or woman of faith. I'm often taken by the gospel presentations that, that one finds in the book of Acts. Let me draw attention to just a few of them. Acts 17, 1-3 describes Paul's ministry in the Greek city of Thessalonica. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, listen to this, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, or is the Messiah. But please notice Paul's method. He is with Jews who have the scripture, 
but who do not yet know the things about Jesus. Or if they do, they may have been told negative things about him. His method is reasoning from the scriptures, asking the synagogue to work through key texts, explaining the text, and then making the argument that the text points to Jesus the Messiah. He uses this same methodology as he works his way down the Greek peninsula and arrives in the south to the vibrant city of Corinth. But there we add something. I'm reading Acts 18, verse 4. It says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. See, we notice that some Greeks were a part of the synagogue in Corinth. They were no doubt God-fearers, men who loved the God of Israel but might not have yet become converts. Now, after spending a year and a half in Corinth, Paul moves to Ephesus. It's a coastal city in in what's now the nation of Turkey. And Ephesus was a leading city in that region. And as was his custom, Acts 19 verse 8 describes his activity again. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But then a breach happens. Verse 9 says, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, please notice this place is called the hall of Tyrannus. Some Greek manuscripts add that daily lectures were held in this hall between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Now, for Canadians, that doesn't sound significant, but it would for people in that part of the world because those hours would have been the hottest part of the day, a time when people would often steal themselves away from work and either nap or even attend a lecture in a cool hall. And so one of the best things that happened to Paul and the gospel is that Paul was kicked out of the synagogue. And in the process, he moves to a very natural place of meeting. And that that brings me back to the method he used. He reasoned with everyone. Now, so that we understand, according to Luke's account, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul in that city so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. But this is key. Paul did not think that his miracles precluded the need to give evidence as to why the gospel was true. Indeed, Paul himself defined his own ministry not on the basis of his miracles, but rather on the basis of the evidence he presented. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. We destroy arguments at every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's an image here we should not miss. Notice first that Paul was never under any illusions. He believed that his ministry was warfare. And so notice the military term he employs, destroy, taking captive. Even the word lofty is intended to convey the idea of a strong tower which is strongly fortified and restrains an attack. In essence, this is Paul's image. He thinks the people in cultures have erected barriers to prevent the gospel from penetrating. And so says Paul, my task has been taken up in in knocking down the strongholds that people raise up against the knowledge of God. Now, Paul's not contrasting his weapons with the conventional weapons of warfare found in the ancient world, you know, for instance, with arrows and swords and battering rams. Rather, as we read 1 Corinthians, he speaks about the Greek love of rhetoric, 
showmanship and personal charisma and all weapons of human ingenuity, which include the ability to entertain and get people to laugh and then get them to cry and then to move their emotions until you have the audience eating out of the palm of your hand. Paul says, I never stoop to that. Instead, the weapons he uses destroy the way people think. But as Don Carson says, that doesn't mean he's merely winning arguments with people. He means something far more. His weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, their mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion to God. And we must do the same today. Every evangelist needs to remember that. Everyone that we encounter has erected barriers to God. The role of apologetics is never to win arguments. We're not even looking for arguments. We seek a far greater goal, a far greater prize. We seek to win people. We seek to identify what people believe and tear down their confidence in that belief system so that in the end they might open their heart and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they consider the gospel, they would find in that precious news that there is so much here that is a strong tower indeed. In this gospel, they can trust. They can build a life that not only begins now, but goes right on for eternity. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would not just make us good at being able to answer those who ask, but give us the ability to touch the hearts of men and women so that they might believe, O Lord God, that you, O Lord God, are true, and that Christ's cross is the reason for hope. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks so much for today and for this entire series, this apologetic series. You know, what's come out of this series is a booklet that you've written called What is the Gospel? And it's going to be released this month. Uh, you know, why was it so important, do you think, that we, that we talk about the gospel in this way? Yeah, because I think, uh, given what we've talked about for three weeks here, apologetics, I think it's so important that we move people beyond simply defending various issues that people have, you know, with the Bible, and to move them towards the issue of what does God actually want with us? What does it mean to be forgiven? How do we know that we're forgiven? How are we forgiven? I mean, all those kind of questions, I think, need to be central upon our mindset. We need to get people reconciled with God. And unless we are clear in terms of what the gospel actually is, well, in that case, people won't be able to find their way through to God. And all the apologetic stuff that we do in the world will be have, have been for nothing. So I think it's so important, and uh, we're happy to, to make this booklet available to everyone that listens. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Want to stay in the loop with everything going on at Back to the Bible Canada? Then follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're there. There's no better way to be up to date on all of our latest audio or video Bible teaching programs, blogs, special Bible resources, and much more. And while you're there, be sure to leave a comment and let us know about your questions, your feedback, or the impact this Bible teaching ministry has had on your spiritual walk. We love hearing from you. 
And don't forget to share the posts with a loved one so they can also receive encouragement that is always rooted in God's Word. For more information or to request this month's free Bible resource, Your Salvation Story, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, it would mean so much if you consider a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry.